from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. People tried to stop this from happening, and the mechanisms available to them were not enough. The shooter was an adult. He was able to purchase this weapon, and there was no mechanism in Missouri law for police to legally take the weapon. Do they actually already have uh, that capacity of armed um, personnel in the schools? The only way that police could have done more is if they had the ability to get the weapon out of the hands of the shooter. We have to care, but we have to do more than just raise balloons and provide words of condolence and comfort. We need gun registration, age restrictions, red flag laws, licensing, training, mandatory insurance, waiting periods, background checks. And we're calling upon Governor Parson. I'm Danny Wisentowski. Two schools remain closed in St. Louis in the aftermath of Monday's deadly shooting, which took place on the campuses of Central Visual and Performing Arts High School and the Collegiate School of Medicine and Bioscience in South St. Louis. Attention has turned to the shooter and the weapon he used in carrying out this attack, which left two dead, a health teacher and a 15-year-old student. To talk about what we've learned from police and what we know about how the shooter acquired the AR-style rifle and hundreds of rounds of ammunition— We are once again joined by St. Louis Public Radio reporter Rachel Littman. Rachel, thank you so much again for being here to talk about this incredibly difficult story. Uh, Of course, Danny. Rachel, earlier this week, police released the photos of the the very rifle used in this shooting. But we've learned uh, quite a bit about the shooter's efforts to purchase not just that firearm, but but others. Um, Tell us a bit about what we've learned in terms of that timeline and, and those efforts. Earlier this month, the shooter went to a licensed firearm dealer in St. Charles County and attempted to purchase a weapon. We don't know if it was he was specific, specifically seeking an assault-style rifle, a handgun, etc., but went to St. Charles, Missouri, and tried to purchase a firearm. Because this was a licensed dealer, they were required to run a background check, and he was blocked from buying the firearm because of that background check. We don't know why this individual was blocked from purchasing this weapon. We know that he does not have a felony record. We are unsure if there is anything in his juvenile past that would have, you know, raised red flags and caused him to be denied. But uh, the form that these licensed sellers have to fill out does include uh, questions about addiction or unlawful use of substances or some mental health concerns. So after this background check failed... Uh, The shooter bought the weapon from the weapon that was used in the attack from a private seller. That does not require a background check. And we know that the seller had legally purchased the gun in December of 2020. Wow. And and just in terms of the timing... Um, you know, that that attempt to buy the firearm you mentioned, that was 16 days before the school shooting. It took place on October 8th, 2022. This really seems to, to point to a, a sense of planning um, that this person was carrying out. Is, is that our sense that this was thought out? That this... I think the demonstration between the efforts to purchase a firearm and the documents that the police found in the shooter's car do point to a, a sense of planning. How long this planning had been taken place, we don't know yet. There may be additional information in the documents that the FBI and the SLMPD have reviewed that would provide a timeline for how long this individual had been thinking or planning this attack or whether there had been other targets, you know, before they care in in his mind before these attacks were carried out. 
We also know that about eight days, nine days before the shooting on October 15th, the family of the shooter called SLMPD because his mother wanted the weapon that was ultimately used in the shooting out of the house. She had found it uh, for whatever reason. She believed that it would either present a threat to her family or to others, and she wanted it gone. We know the SLMPD should have received and likely did receive the notification that this individual had failed his background check. But there's no provision in Missouri law for them to confiscate this weapon. The shooter was an adult. He was able to purchase this weapon. And there was no mechanism in Missouri law for police to legally take the weapon. So despite his family knowing or, you know, wanting this weapon out of the shooter's possession. The police could not do it. And we know that the family then later gave the weapon to a third party in an effort to remove it from their house. Rachel, this this sequence of events is just so startling because it paints a situation where the FBI knows something is up with this guy. The family knows something is up with this guy. You know, the St. Louis police have the capacity to be alerted, it seems, to this background check. And the family's reached out to them. Someone has, you know, tried to remove the weapon. But, you know, the combination of the people closest to him and the officials can't do anything. And and I think what you just said, that there was no existing law to prevent this, uh, that is essentially what Sergeant Charles Wall of the St. Louis police said. Um, Is he really correct for all of this information to be there, but no avenues for action? When an individual is legally able to have this weapon, has legally purchased it, which he did from a private seller, there is no mechanism in Missouri law for this individual to have this gun seized by law enforcement. There is no so-called red flag law in Missouri, where if an individual is seen to be a a danger to themselves or others, for the weapons to be seized for the protection of themselves and others. So yes, Charles Wall is correct. This is unfortunately one of these situations where people tried to stop this from happening, and the mechanisms available to them were not enough. Now, you had mentioned, you know, the lack of red flag laws, but what you had also mentioned about the possibility that something in the juvenile records of this shooter could lend, you know, some kind of sense of what... We don't know. Yeah. We, there, there is absolutely no way to know yeah. why this individual was blocked from getting a uh, a gun. We The only thing we do know is that he had no felonies on his record that would have automatically precluded him in any way, shape, from getting a, we- in getting a weapon. We don't know what. We know what it wasn't. We don't know what it was, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Is there something even conceivably, you know, for someone who's a juvenile, you know, there are juveniles who, who can commit, you know, violent crimes and they are not charged in the same way that adults are. They're put through you know, there are records that remain that allow people to know, you know, what they had done in that age, but it is not in the same place as our criminal justice system for someone who's charged with a felony. Juvenile records are 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 99.99% of the time closed to the public. We mm-hmm. will not know if this individual had something that was adjudicated in the juvenile process that, you know, raised concerns for the people doing this background check and ultimately led for him not to purchase this weapon through the license to dealer. No, I, I appreciate that explanation and, and certainly the things that we don't know and may never be able to know about those records. But you know, this this nothing can be done message is is just really tough to accept. And the Reverend Daryl Gray of the Missionary Baptist Ministers Union in St. Louis, uh, he left us a voicemail and he basically gave us this point that we do need these these kinds of laws, these red flag laws, and not just as a response to school shootings. I'm very concerned as all St. Louisans are about the school shooting, but I want us to be reminded 
that we've had over 300 murders in our city. And if we don't respond with solutions, then we'll continue to have death in our city. We have to care, but we have to do more than just raise balloons and provide words of condolence and comfort. We need gun registration. We need age restriction. We need red flag laws, licensing, training, mandatory insurance, waiting periods, periods, background checks. And we're calling upon Governor Parson to call a special session to respond to the issue of gun violence in our state. We're talking to St. Louis Public Radio reporter Rachel Lippman about the details that continue to come out about this week's deadly school shooting in South St. Louis. And Rachel, we, we just listened to the Reverend Daryl Gray kind of, I think, making a statement that I think a lot of folks might be feeling, you know, why don't we have these laws? Why are there not, you know, gun regulations? Um, and Governor Mike Parson, you know, who Reverend Daryl Gray just kind of called out and said, you know, he's the one who should be directing these policies. Mike Parson stated this week, uh, I think, similar to what the St. Louis police said, that all the laws in the world are not going to stop these things. Um, And he, Governor Parson, actually criticized the St. Louis Public Schools for not arming its security guards. Um, Is that something that that the St. Louis Public Schools is is considering, or or do they actually already have uh, that capacity of armed um, personnel in the schools? They have the... So the guards that are at the individual schools and are there on a regular day-to-day basis looking at the metal detectors in the halls, generally speaking, no, those individuals are not armed. The SLPS does have, for lack of a better response, an armed strike unit that goes around to the different schools and can respond there either on a you know regular patrol make-known basis or when something like this happens. And we do know that those armed security officers went into the building alongside SLMPD officers on Monday. Mm-hmm. Rachel, in our, in our last couple minutes here, you, what is our the evaluation so far of the police response has so far been, you know, a lot of praise for the speed. They were in that building, you know, with the shooter down in either 10 minutes. 10 to 10, 15. 10 yeah. to 15 minutes. And I've seen some descriptions, you know, describing this as, as that they saved lives. And I think that's, that's an understandable response. But it didn't save the lives of teacher Jean Kushka or student Alexandria Bell or prevent the seven injured or hundreds of students who were traumatized. Where are we at now in evaluating whether the police you know, did all they could or if there were still things that could have been done? I don't think there is any way for you to look at the way that they responded. The, the only way that police could have done more is if they had the ability to get the weapon out of the hands of the shooter. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they don't. There are no red flags laws in Missouri that would have allowed them to get the weapon out to alert others to, hey, this guy is is a problem, you know, to – we don't know what investigation they did afterwards. Maybe they tell the school, hey, this is a possibility, but we're stretching here on that. The bottom line is the way that laws are set up in Missouri and in the United States – Two dead, eight wounded, seven wounded, 700 traumatized is considered mm-hmm. a good day. And that just is awful. It really is. And, and there, it, there is no uh, – Peter Meredith put it on Facebook. Uh, he's a state rep that whose district includes the school. There was no reason for the police to have to be heroes. Yes, they were. The police did what they could, but there's no reason for them to have had to do what they needed to do. The response was the best it could have been within the circumstances, but the circumstances are awful. Yeah, and I just think even those heroes we're talking about, those police officers who went into the school, their fellow officers were, you know, at the home of the shooter, you know, you know, being told by their family that something was wrong 
and they couldn't take the gun, perhaps knowing that that weapon could be used against their own fellow officers. And you know, it was. We, we, don't, we don't know what was going through their minds when, you know, they responded to the home. Um, you know, were they thinking about what could eventually happen? We, you know, we obviously don't know. Right. And I'm not going to sit there and psychoanalyze what was in the minds of those police officers as they're responding. But we do know that people tried. The family tried. They recognized that that was a problem. The officers could not respond. The family could not get the resources. Two people are dead. Seven people are wounded. 700 people are traumatized. And unfortunately, in the world that we live in, that is considered a, quote, good response. Rachel Lippman is a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Rachel, thank you again uh, for being here and sharing your coverage of this tragedy with us. I'd say it's a pleasure, Danny, but I'm glad to be on. (laughs) Thank you, Rachel. Point taken, of course. This episode was produced by Alex Hoyer. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.